the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 132, and our guest is Bronson Arroyo. Bronson is a singer and songwriter who has a new debut full-length record of originals with his band, The O4. The album is called Some Might Say, and it was released in February of 2023 on Nasty Hook Records. Prior to his career as a songwriter, Bronson played Major League Baseball for 16 years, y'all. If you're a fan of the marinade or have followed me on social media, you know about my passion for baseball, and specifically the Cincinnati Reds. Bronson Arroyo won a World Series with the legendary 04 Boston Red Sox, was a MLB All-Star, earned a gold glove, and is a member of my beloved Reds Hall of Fame, with whom he spent the bulk of his career. We caught up with Bronson at the house that he and his band were renting for their gig at the Innings Festival in Tampa, Florida last month, and this was a far-reaching conversation that is one of the great thrills of my creative life. Everyone, it is my honor to bring you my conversation with Bronson Arroyo. I'll sit still. Right? <laughs> Be cool, I'll sit still. <laughs> Man, thanks for doing this. Um, I just uh, off mic, we were just talking about how I grew up not too far from kind of where you grew up, you know. And uh, I am wearing my Reds hat because I was born in Kentucky. Oh, that's cool. And uh, grew up an obsessive Reds fan. Uh, I watch almost every. I have the MLB package. I watch almost every game. And uh, you are one of my favorite Reds. So like. The, the 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 crossover of this show, you know, like you making music and being a creative, plus being one of my favorite Reds of all time, this is a huge honor. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It's a, it, you know just just being in that organization for for nine years and and um, you know playing there long enough to now you know be getting ready to go into their Hall of Fame and and you know you're thinking about Johnny Bench and you're thinking about. Pete Rose and, and Joe Morgan and all the guys from the great eight, you know, and you, you just don't think of yourself in that kind of a breath. So, I mean, just to have someone who, 
you know, says like, hey, man, you're one of my favorite Reds of all time, which is, you know, it's kind of cool because people have been watching since the 70s, you know. Well, and I think I think part of why exactly. And, I, and there have been so many greats and you play with some of the greats too, you know, the great Reds. Um, I think part of why I was drawn to you was I didn't know you were a musician, I don't think at the time. I, um, but that there was a creativity to the way that you played. Um, I, there, there was like a it was clear you were a cerebral player. Right. Right. And that's, that's one of the things that I love about the game in general is it's such a thoughtful game. Right. And it's, and, and it, it rewards creativity. Right. And that was something that you were clearly, uh, excellent at. Yeah. That, you know, that was, well, for one, you know, you hear it, you hear it all the time where people will be like, I can't watch baseball. You know, it's too slow and too boring, but the people who really love the game, they understand the subtleties. They understand the chess match. They understand the beautifulness between the pitcher and the catcher and the batter that's going on and all these different things. And, you know, part of that was the fact that I grew up in the weight room with my father at a really young age. And, you know, I was pushing just crazy weight. I'm actually coming to find out now. I, I, I don't think there's another eight year old on the planet who's ever pushed the weight I pushed. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've been, I have this DVD. I have this DVD. I was showing the guys last night. They're like, you're always talking about this bronze. Like show us the video. So I show them the video of me. I'm eight years old. I weigh 60 pounds. Yeah. I bench 130. I squat 255 and deadlift 235. I'm an eight year old kid and I weigh 60 pounds. You can't find a kid. I can't find anywhere on record that anyone's even in the same universe with that in modern day. Yeah. hundred pound kids can't even come close to those totals. And, um, in that time though, if you think about being an eight year old kid and pushing, you know, 230 pounds and then six months later you get 235 or 240, um, and how, how much work it takes to get to the, the extra five pounds. It was a lot of it was strategy. And my father was always talking about how tight are the clothes we're wearing what colors are in the weight room you know we were talking about rest we're talking about carbo loading you know we were talking about all these subtleties and so he turned my brain on for strategy and so yeah i could physically dominate kids when i was young but when i got into pro ball and you realized a 90 mile an hour fastball wasn't going to dominate the scene yeah you had to find other ways but my brain was had already been turned on for that strategy which you're talking about the cerebral way of trying to be successful dude that's what a gift from your father too you know, to, to like, to talk to you about things in that way. Um, but also you received it, <clears throat> right? So like, it's, it's yeah. both, it's both ha having it there, uh, presented to you, but also you being open to it, you yeah. having that open mind. Do, do you think that you have always had, like, were you always a creative? Did you always have a sense that you were a creative person? Yeah, I think so. You know, just, I can remember a lot of times, you know, you talk about being, you know, you talk about asking people what they did as a kid. And a lot of times you hear people saying, well, I was bored here. I was bored there. I, I felt like I was never bored. It was always, mm. you were always interested in something. I felt like curiosity was, was just there for me. And whether that was like taking a toy apart and seeing how the engine worked or trying to hit a tennis ball against the wall and see if you could hit the line, you know, 10 times out of the, in the next two minutes or whatever it was, you were just always kind of challenging yourself in a lot of ways. And, and inside of that, just thinking about detail, I felt like it was being creative, you know, whether it was playing a video game or climbing a tree, you're always trying to be efficient, find ways to kind of cut the corner in a way that was honest and, and had some integrity in it. You know, I just, yeah. those, those things were already there. I think even without what my father was doing. And he, I think he was just adding fertilizer to it as we were going along. Yeah. So were you, you're playing ball, you're, you're, you're lifting, you're working out, you're an athlete. Were you also that part of the lot about not ever really getting bored? Were you writing at all? Were you making stuff as a kid growing up? 
I wasn't, no, I wasn't writing a whole lot. I, I kind of was, you know, I thought of schoolwork in a lot of ways as, as, um, as busy work. You know, uh -huh. I, I got great grades, you know, just because it felt like it was what you were supposed to do, but it didn't interest me that much. I really, you know, I was listening to music at the time, but I wasn't really delving into it. Um, it was more about, I don't know, just kind of the things that were around me that would turn you on. It was, you know, I was a, I was kind of a regular kid in a lot of ways. Like I love to just, you know, ride a three wheeler or a go-kart and ride my bike around town and climb a tree and build a fort and chop down stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, just with your friends that you're, you're making these moments with your friends as well. But I was always kind of the guy who was driving the train a little bit. I was always organized. I was always the one who was kind of saying like, Oh no, we should, I think we should do it this way, guys. Like, well, we don't want to do that, man. That's going to get us in trouble, man. I'm not looking for that. You know, like you, you know, you're having a good time and you're doing these things but you're you're I was always kind of a reasonable kid in a way I didn't I, I'd like you know I'd liked going I liked riding a bike but I wasn't the guy who was going to try to jump the 20 foot jump and and, and and break my neck you know I was always yeah. a bit um I don't know cautious in a way I, I felt like my body was of value I knew it was going to take me somewhere and I, I really didn't want to kind of put it in in harm's way okay <clears throat> that's really interesting especially thinking about making a record so it sounds like you're, you have in you this sort of like um, uh, discipline of, of, of a sort, which is useful in making a record, right. real fucking useful. Yeah. But also, there, when you're making a record, especially of your own songs, right? That's a risk. You're, yeah. you're really throwing yourself out there. So can you yeah. talk about that tension at all and like how you came to a place to go, I'm ready to go for this? To be able to do that, yeah. yeah. You know, Physically, like I said, I always tried to make myself, you know, put myself in positions to not be harmed. You know, I just, mm -hmm. I just, I knew, I knew my elbows and my knees and stuff were, were of value, right? They were going to yeah. be used a lot in my life. And, and, um, part of that was being what we were doing in the weight room, you know, you're physically seeing it there, but you know, some of the stuff that I also got in those early years was a guy who was very, very confident. My father was very confident in his abilities. He didn't second guess himself a lot. And even when we failed, you know, people have often asked me, how did you not turn out to be one of those kids like a Todd Marinovich? You hear these stories mm -hmm. of the stereotypical little league dad who's so harsh on the son that by the time he's 20 years old, he's burned out of the sport. He doesn't love it. He's been critiqued too hard and the difference I always say was that my father just was the was an ultimate optimist so yeah he was pushing me hard but if I went one for four in a game he was talking about man what a great hit that was he wasn't talking about the times that I struck out mm. right he was never saying oh why you know you went three for four today but I can't believe that that lefty got you out in the ninth inning it was it was like hey you know we got beat today but you know what we're gonna get him tomorrow it's all right we're going home we're going home we're gonna get our rest we're gonna get him tomorrow and because of that he changed the way that I that I thought about, um, sport, you know, it, it didn't feel like anything was ever a failure. It just felt like part of kind of going along. And in, in that I grew to, to not doubt myself, to not be insecure about exposing myself. And so when it comes to writing music, I find even the guys in the band, you know, a lot of guys I've been around, there's a certain type of a musician. And a lot of times they feel a little naked, putting themselves out there, saying these yeah. stories, telling these words, out to people and I just didn't really have that and I think coupled on top of that was over the years I've seen a lot of stars come through the locker room mm. and I've seen people at the highest levels of different things whether it's an actor or an actress or a musician or an athlete and see the self-doubt in them 
you know, them, them come to me and you, you're seeing this guy on TV who's an absolute monster, but inside the locker room, I see the softness and the insecurity and the way that he beats himself up the days after not being successful mm-hmm. and how it's bothering him. And that just never bothered me. I always had an easy way of brushing things off my shoulder. And that has parlayed itself now and to be able to write a record and be like, I'm going to put it out to the world. And if I think it sounds good, you know, then I'm going to put it out. And in a lot of ways, I, I've, I almost sometimes think about it where my wife will say to me something like, um, you know, I say, well, don't worry about it. Who cares what people think? And she'll say, but you care what people think, right? And I say, yeah, I said, this is how I think of it. When I look in the mirror and I look at what I'm wearing, if I stamp it good, I'm walking out of the house, I never think about it again. But if I think it looks bad, then yes, I care that other people are going to look at me and think that it looks bad. So I'll change it. But if once I stamp it good, it's good. So for me, the music, once I'd listened to these songs and I thought those are good enough for other people to hear, I never kind of like second guess myself again. It's like, oh, we just move forward. Wow. I love that. I want to adopt that in my own life. Like what a great life lesson in general. That idea of like, God, I love that. If, if you, that mirror thing is such great imagery. Like if, if you're cool with how you look, then it's all good. Who gives a fuck? It doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. Then. Right. Right. I do care what people <clears throat> think about what my hair looks like, but sure. only, only if I think it looks if bad. I think it looks bad. <laughs> only if I think it looks bad. If, if I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, you look gross. And yeah, I don't want to present that to the world. But as long as I think it looks good, when I walk out, man, you never think about it again. Now I'm just enjoying my time or whatever you're doing. Dude, what a great creative lesson too. What an enormous creative lesson. And because I think when we make stuff, right, those of us who make stuff, we so often are, are insecure about it. And there is a lot of, you know, you're in your head about this thing that I'm putting out in the world, right? Did I ask Bronson all the right questions in this, you know, in this conversation sure. that I only get 45 minutes with him or whatever? Right. Did I do it? Did I get all of it in that I wanted to get in? But if I walk away from this and feel like, you know what? That was, that was fun. That was great. Then who cares what right. everybody else? Then it shouldn't that. really matter, you know, unless I guess, <laughs> I guess unless you're putting it out, you know, if, if I, if I think a record sounds good and then you put it out to the world and everyone's telling you like, yo, that's not, that's not good enough, man. Then, then you have to go back and, and kind of like, am I being realistic about myself or is my overview of what I'm looking at? You know, am I actually seeing the world in reality here? Or am I kind of yeah. like cockeyed in some way? But you know, in, in my, in my life for the most part, if I thought, Hey, I got a good breaking ball here. I think it's good enough to get people out. It got them out eventually. Right. So it's kind of like, if you have enough of those things, check out in the way that you have operated, then you say, Oh, I, I think I'm being reasonable here. I think I'm singing in key. Right. People ask all the time. Like, when did you think you could sing? I was like, I didn't sing until I was 22. That's crazy. I was in double A with an acoustic guitar. And somebody says, well, why'd you start singing? It's like, I just sang a couple of karaoke songs and I thought people were giving me a decent response. And I thought I was singing in key, you know, it just, it made sense to me. I knew I wasn't the greatest singer, but I knew that there was, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. And as long as, you know, as long as those things are kind of checking out, then you can continue to move forward without kind of second guessing yourself all the time. At that time, you're in double A and you've got an acoustic guitar and you're singing karaoke. Are you at that point writing songs? Not really. You know, I've written up until till 2018 I never really tried to write a song that I thought I'd want to hear on the radio I would have been written Uh. writing songs for kids at elementary schools um, maybe for kids at a hospital um, you know specifically maybe about childhood memories of driving back to the Keys with my parents you know after we moved up north of Tampa when I was about 10 yeah or you know you're talking about very specific things in your family or somebody had passed away let's say 
but yeah. not really writing from like, I just want to write a song that's on a record that I'd want to hear in my car at midnight driving down the road. Right. I'd yeah, never yeah. really done that before. And that didn't start until after I retired. That's really interesting. Is that a question of creative capital? Is that like a, being a major league baseball player is incredibly consuming. There's a whole, you're doing press and you're playing and you're rehabbing and all that kind of stuff. You're traveling. Is that a function of just sort of like not having the sort of time to do it? Do you think? I think part of it was probably not having enough time. Also, you know, it took me, it's taken me, I didn't pick up a guitar until I was 22. So I'm first, I'm trying to work on the craft of even be able to play the guitar. Then you're working yeah. on the craft of my singing decent. And now it's like, there's all these layers, right? So it's like, you're peeling back this onion. So if we talk about, for instance, you know, pitching, you can pitch, you know, in your backyard is one thing, then just throw a bullpen in front of the general manager and a bunch of other players. It's a whole nother level. Yeah. Now spring training game, different level. Now regular season, yeah, different yeah. level, right? World series. So with music, it's the same thing. It's like you play around the campfire, but now I need to stand up and have my, 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 my face near a microphone. I can't look at my fingers as much. And uh, now I'm uh -huh. standing and I'm not sitting. Right. And so how does uh -huh. the guitar, so there's all these layers to trying to get comfortable. So in those early years, it was just trying to perform. Once I, thought hey let me try to write a song in, in the early years it would have been because something came to me that said you know I need to write a song for these elementary school kids because they're not going to listen to me talk for 45 minutes and I need to capture their imagination a little bit in a different way yeah. it was so it would have been like a tool but to try to write um in, in, on a real serious note it just had never it was never something that I thought it, it I didn't have a desire to do it really there was so many songs in the world that I wanted to try to duplicate I wanted to sing a Pearl Jam song I wanted to sing a Beatles song I wanted uh -huh. to sing a Nirvana song that I was kind of stuck in that mode and but as I was getting better and better and you're playing more and more shows with a cover band around Cincinnati over the years or in Boston you're starting to realize that you know, there's a performance here and and, and I'm getting more comfortable on the stage and maybe there's a time that I do want to tell these tell some stories that are my story because it might be a little more special. I'm not sure if it is or not, but I'm going to maybe test the waters one day. And I felt like at the end of my career, I was seasoned enough as a musician over 20 years to say, let me see if I can put down my own stories and see if we can make this make sense. So interesting. The I'm interested also in, I mean, baseball of the games, right. Of, of the major sports, at least I feel like is the most creative, uh, game and is the one that rewards creativity the most but there's also like I know for me growing up as a ball player I always felt like my creative side because of the culture of sports and less so in baseball but but the locker room culture wasn't very welcoming to someone who identified as a creative person did you experience any of that yeah, I definitely did a little bit. You know, there's something about uh, an acoustic guitar and being able to perform songs that, you know, I'd say nine out of 10 guys you run into, their ears are still going to perk up if you're doing that decently. But if I was in the locker room, let's say, you know, taking a bunch of photos with a camera or painting or something, there's no doubt that you, I've seen other guys, you know, break out a camera on a, on a plane and, and, you know, 20, 30 years from now, those pictures are going to be absolutely gold. But but yeah. if he's getting criticized for, at the moment, like, what are you doing taking pictures on the plane? You know what yeah, I mean? It's yeah, like, you're yeah. a softy, man. We're here. You know, we're like, yeah. we're yeah. like, we're, we're, we're men here. You yeah, know, we, exactly. Yeah, we are alpha. You know, we, we do this. And, and you know, in a testosterone filled world, which it is 
you know, that way in sport, because that's really the only way to survive in sport period. Even though baseball can be as creative as you want, you know, it's not as probably as physical as football or basketball, but you still need a certain amount of power and explosiveness to make it happen. And so you're still living inside of a world also where a lot of guys are, you know, might tease you based on the fact that, you know, they're not comfortable doing something like that. Uh, And so, you know, you know, when, when you think about a professional athlete, I mean, these guys are 23 to 30 years old in their prime. You know, they really are kids. When I, when I first got to the major leagues, I I thought it was, I thought it was going to be, when I watched TV in 1985 and I saw Dwight Gooden and Ozzie Smith and Tommy Herr and, and some of these legends of the game, I thought, Every guy in that locker room or on in a big league field is a is a guy's guy, and they pay their bills on time. Man, they got good relationships <laughs> with their wives. And then you get inside the locker room and you find out that you know sometimes Manny Ramirez is watching cartoons, man, and eating freaking <laughs> freaking fruity pebbles. And you're like, yeah. what is going on here, right? It's yeah. like you know, it's just it was, it was a totally different vibe and you realize the insecurities were there even for some of the greatest players and 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 some of the goofiness and the silliness in this guy and then the seriousness of someone else that you thought was different you know you you got a whole bag of tricks there just like in any other job in life and you realize that sometimes they didn't have these things all tied and buttoned up man you're not surprising anybody that manny was uh watching cartoons (laughs) and eating fruity pebbles but your point is well taken um who are the most creative guys, either on the field or just in general? Who are the most creative guys that you played ball with? That I'd played with a lot of them, you know, guys like Ryan Dempster. You know, he's yeah, he's here he's going to be doing he's doing here at the festival. And he's doing the off the mound. You know, guys yeah. like Kevin Millar. A lot of times, the guys that were kind of witty and funny, they always seem to be kind of creative. And then you always had some quiet guys. You know, um, I played with a kid named Danny Herrera, a little lefty that threw a screwball for a couple of years with the Reds, and he's an he's an amazing painter now. Um, but a lot of these talents, you know, didn't surface until afterwards because the game was just so hard to survive in a lot of ways that you you didn't have a lot of time to let that flower or bloom. And even if you did, you're probably doing it on a real low level at the house. Luckily for me, I'd gotten comfortable enough at the major league level that I could bring an acoustic guitar into the room and have it around. And the last 10 years of my career, I got to, you know, play right outside the shower where, where the, the resonance was great with the tile while the guys were showering before the game started after batting practice and they were enjoying these songs that I was playing because they either didn't know them or they did know them, you know, and they were like, oh, that's cool. I haven't heard that in a while or yeah. whatever. But a lot of times, you know, you didn't re- really get to see guys, you know, doing art or doing poetry or, you know, writing writing books or anything inside of a locker room. A lot of times your time was too limited in a lot of ways. Man, you, you touched on something there that... <clears throat> that I wanted to ask you about, which is, and, and, and I think you've, you've kind of given us a window into the answer to this question, but people don't have careers at as long as yours. And not only that, but to overcome the adversity that you, that you did, like, as I was looking back on your career, preparing for this conversation, you went through a lot of shit, man, injuries, you know, trades, um, there's this one year where you like, I forget exactly when it was like 2012 or something. You're coming off this really rough year and you'd had carpal tunnel, not, you know, not long before that. And then you have this like killer 2012. Um, and you'd been in the league for a minute then. Uh, what do you think? Like how, what do you think helps you to overcome that adversity? Like how were you able to, to do that? To do that. Yeah. Yeah. 2011 was a rough year. I came into spring training and I had, I was feeling really sick and I didn't know why I I was, it just felt like a flu, like a strong flu, but it wasn't going away after like 14 days, wind up having mono, 
at the same time, a thing called Valley Fever out in Arizona, which is like this airborne spore that you get from cactus, and it can turn into like meningitis in your lungs and kill you. And it, that ended a couple of guys' careers and then had whooping cough on top the same time. Like I was coughing every five seconds for like three months, Jeez. felt so bad, barely went to the park in 11. That's the year I pitched 199 innings yeah. uh, and didn't get the 200 because I started really slow that year. That, um, But, you know, you, you always – Physically, I had less injuries than the average guy. You know, that part of that was the fact that I didn't have to pitch max effort. And I also mm. took care of myself from a younger age than most guys. I think I'd set a foundation of being playing baseball year round, probably earlier than most guys. But, you know, getting through the the adverse times of it when I was with the Pirates, you know, they're bouncing me up and down from AAA to the big leagues a lot. They wouldn't let me shake the catcher off. You know, there's all these things back you're then. You're really young then, too. You know? Yeah, I'm 22, 23. Yeah. I'm in the major leagues. And, you know, you're just dealing with, you know, back then there was nothing but a bunch of 35 year old grown men in the locker room and they were hazing you pretty heavy. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was definitely difficult to deal with. I think, I think what, what got me through all the tough times was, was just kind of a, a belief in myself that I was good enough to play at that level for a long period of time. And I also, I also knew, you know, that underneath I had, I had some stuff that nobody else knew what was going on. Like nobody knew I was an eight year old kid squatting 255, right? Uh, like when you have that in under the hood and I look yeah, at a guy yeah. like Kurt Schilling and maybe he's chewing me apart and yeah, Kurt's a better pitcher than me and always will be. But when, but I know when he was eight and I was eight, I was doing some stuff and this guy wasn't doing nothing. Right. <laughs> like, so that, that just, that breeded confidence in me that, Hey, if we just stay the course here, yeah, maybe I won't play in the big leagues for 15 years. Maybe it's just going to be six. Yeah. You know, I didn't know where the end of the line would be, but I really felt like I belonged at that level. I was also a consistent winner at every level at the minor leagues. And I was proven to people that you could be a nice guy. You could be a good guy. You could, you could continue to have success. You could, you could be a good teammate. There was a lot of things that I brought to the table inside of a locker room that weren't necessarily wins and losses that, that mm. I could feel the love and people around me could feel that as well, how I was parlaying that along the way. And I, and I didn't think that that was going to win me any baseball games, but I knew, I knew what I was bringing to the table was just pretty solid all the way around. Like you're, you're being a solid guy. You're being a solid pitcher. You don't get hurt very often. Just going to continue to do this thing and see what happens. Man, that part about just like being somebody that people want to be around like that when, when the, when they're making the decision about the cut, you know, like right. I'd rather keep Bronson who I like having around than this other guy who's maybe throws a little bit harder, but isn't necessarily somebody that, you know, he's not going to give us enough that he's going to be worth bringing him into the clubhouse. That's a great lesson right there. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there's, there's no doubt that I've played with guys. I mean, I mean, I, I, I loved playing with, uh, with all the guys on the reds and Matt Latos was part of that rotation in 2012 that we yeah. had a great year, but you know, I mean, if I'm honestly looking at that situation, you know, Matt Latos in a lot of ways based on personality and just work ethic and a few different things. I mean, you know, he walked away from 80 to 100 million dollars that Mike Leak got. And, and, and anybody in 2012 would have said, hey, Latos is a better pitcher than Leak. Yeah. But, you know, just based on, you know, kind of like rubbing people raw in the organization and stuff like that, not being a great guy inside the locker room. I mean, you know, you got pushed out of the game when you were still in your prime and could throw 95 miles an hour. And, and yeah. I, that would have never happened to me anyway because I just wasn't that guy even when I was a kid. But yeah. um, it definitely was something that was useful inside of an organization. Like you said, when it comes push comes to shove and, you know, we're going to keep this guy around versus someone else. I mean, being a good teammate matters. Dude, same thing with the band. 
right? Like, and there's plenty of guys that and gals that like can play, and people don't want to. It's mostly guys, right? <laughs> that, but people don't want to be around them for a long period of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it it, it it doesn't matter how good you are if you're if you're kind of a dick and you're, you're not helping to, you know, to <laughs> not, serve not the song. Yeah, and like, yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you from from the interviews I've I've heard about the music and about this particular band. Uh, the 04, it sounds like you got a bunch of guys who aren't that way. It sounds like you got a bunch of guys who you want to play with. And so I want to dive into the record a little bit. And there are some, some like huge bright spots that I just like kept listening to. And so I kind of want to talk about like a few of those songs. The first one that just, uh, that really grabbed me by the collar was uh guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, Guerrilla Warfare is probably, you know, when people say what's your favorite song on the record, it's really hard. It really is hard to pick. You know, a lot of times when I when I would write in the past, like I said, just about, you know, certain subjects or whatever, you'd catch a melody that you were like, oh, that, that's my favorite melody for sure compared to some other songs I've written. But as these songs have come to life and they all have like, you know, had their own life from the, the, the original demo that I wrote into where they are on the album now, it's, it's really hard to pick because I just really have enjoyed almost top to bottom every song. But Guerrilla Warfare is probably the, the closest one to me, just near and dear to my heart because it, the beginning verse is about me finding where my father was from in Cuba, in Cuba in 2018. So I'd, I'd taken a trip over there. My buddy, Josh Klinghoffer, who's friends with, actually is, has played with me in many, many shows uh, with all these guys. They're all best friends. And, uh, you know, he wanted to be in the Chili Peppers for 10 years. And now he's out with Eddie Vedder a lot touring. And we, we in at the Innings Festival in, in Arizona, it was awesome, man. It was like Josh was on stage with Eddie. And then Clint from my band here went up and played a YouTube song with him. And then I went up and played Black. And I was laughing uh, and thinking, we used to all play a bunch of Pearl Jam songs. And now we're the only three guys touching the stage with Ed tonight, which was amazing. But um, that's awesome. <laughs> but but uh, Guerrilla Warfare, you know, Josh had told me, hey, there's a girl that I've got in Cuba that could take you around if you want to go over. And, and Obama had opened it up so we, I could fly straight in from Tampa. So I was yeah. like, this is cool, man. Jump on Southwest. I don't have to go through Canada yeah, yeah. Or, 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 you know, or Mexico. So was that your first time? It was my first time being wow. there, yeah. Okay. And so my father had told me the only thing he'd remember was this place called Jesus de Monte uh -huh. and as a little kid before he moved to the Keys. And so we went to Jesus de Monte, this area, and we took the translator, and she was asking all the old people. We were finding everybody was like 80, 90 years old. You know, do you know my grandparents' name? Do you know this name? And they were like, no, no. They, nobody was really sure. So we went up to the church, and there was this church on the top of the hill, and they had just let church out. It was on a Sunday, and, and the priest was there, and it was this little old lady who was the clerk, and she's, we asked her, you know, um, do you have any paperwork or anything? And I, she said, give me your, your father and your uncle. I was with my cousin, give them, give them, uh, give me the two brothers and give me their birth dates and come back tomorrow. So we come back and she's got hand typed out from a typewriter, these freaking baptism records. It's got every person I ever knew on my father's side in, in Key West. And they were there at these baptisms. And then it had the houses and the addresses where they lived. And so we oh. went to these houses and we talked to these people and asked them who they bought the house from. And they're like, we don't remember who, but it was in, it was like around 1952, which was from my family before they moved to the keys. And, um, just, you know, j so that the song opens up with, you know, I've got a feeling in my core. We've walked these streets some time ago, this revolution in my soul. I've got a feeling, Jesus de Monte on the hill, the priest and clerk, they lie so still my blood. It runs. I catch a chill because it was like, I'm literally standing in the place that my family had walked, you know, and it's such a strange, odd time capsule in the world. And, uh, that I wrote that li those lyrics on the plane flying home and uh, I didn't catch the chorus till much later. And in the chorus, I was, you know, 
I've been getting a little bit of kind of pushback sometimes in, in a little bit of my family because, you know, a lot of Cubans have disdain for, for El Castro. And, a lot, yeah. and, and in the song, I'm almost kind of, um, you know, immortalizing him or, or saying, you know, taking over the country in 59. But I was just kind of I was I was so kind of enamored by the fact that the boat he came over with with Che and only a handful of men took over this country and the you could touch the boat i was right there in the museum and the bullet holes are still in it and i was just so blown away that this stuff was real it was almost like never seeing a camel or something yeah, in your life or, yeah. or, or going to the pyramids of giza and be like this is i can touch this thing man and so you know it made me think if i was 27 years old and i was taking over a country from the <laughs> mountainside after i've been you know exiled many years before i mean this is just ridiculous stuff and so you know the song's got aggression in it it felt like it was kind of like made for for what they had done in the mountainside and so that's why i wrote that chorus about that but i i love the song man it's it's got so much energy in it that is okay so super i didn't know any of that backstory right except that i i in reading the lyrics and listening to the song several times certainly got the feel that there was um you know th that there was uh at least an undercurrent of Cuban politics. And it's obvious when you listen to it. Right? right. But that's really interesting to hear you say, because I kind of thought in the same way as I was listening to it, like this isn't, this isn't necessarily taking much of a stance one way or the other about Fidel right. is right. kind of how I process. I'm narrating it. just what happened. You're just, yeah, you're just telling the story. I'm just telling the story about what happened. You know, mm -hmm. Hey, they're trying to kill me. I'm in the mountainside. We want this freedom fight. And yeah. um, it didn't really matter what he did with the country after the fact. It's just, people were saying that Batista was a brutal dictator yeah. and he was there to try to, you know, make the people a better place. Although a lot of people will agree that he did not make it a better place, yeah. but I'm just narrating it from that, that time capsule of time and the, the line, the history will absolve me was a line that is written all over Cuba, you, all over the walls today even, and that was supposedly a line that he had represented himself years before, before he got exiled. He tried to take over the country once at yeah. the military barracks. That's when they exiled him to Mexico. He defended himself as an attorney and said, history will absolve me. I'm on the right side of the argument. I don't really care what you do with me. Yeah. And so that's why that, that line is in there because I just saw it all over the country, still plastered on the walls to this day. And it's like, you know, you think you're going to show up to a place like that and be like, well, you know, 50 years has gone by, 60 years has gone by, 70 years has gone by, everything will have changed. But because that's the one place in the world that is like Nothing a time capsule, changed. you almost felt like you were still there after it just happened. Yeah. I was there in 2017. Um, it was the most draining vacation I've ever taken. <laughs> oh, really? <Why> is that? <laughs> yeah. My experience was just like, you know, it was a weird time in my life also. Like, context is important. Like, I had a cancerous growth in my stomach. Oh, I was wow. about to have, you know, surgery to remove my appendix. I was really, like, questioning my existence, you know, right. in, in a major way. Um, I hadn't had – I had recently stopped eating meat, and I wasn't drinking. And so, like – and I typically drink, you know. Right. But I had I been sober for, like, months and uh, hadn't been eating meat. And I go to Cuba, and so, like – I'd lost like 30 pounds and I had a fucking cancer in my stomach, you know? Right. Like, right. And so like my headspace and like the context is important, but to me it just felt so like the people that I encountered felt so defeated. That's, that was my experience. And now I, I've talked to so many people who have the opposite experience where right. like the resilience of the Cuban people. Right. They felt the joy from the people. The joy right. from the people. It's just like, for whatever reason, my experience, and I expected that. You know, like I expected to go and feel the joy. And right. to me, I just felt like like so defeated. And I did write a lot at that time because of that. There's something about that place that kind of brings it out of you, right? Right. Um, 
Yeah, I could see that though. I mean, I now that thinking back upon what what I did when I was there and com- kind of like comparing it to like the Dominican Republic or some other places I've gone to yeah. that are pretty pretty dirt poor as well, but that you feel nothing but joy from right. the kids and stuff. I, I I will say that I felt there was a bit of heaviness, yeah. um, not only heaviness. with the military yeah. kind of watching over the 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 the, the public there, but also the fact that it almost felt like the the ceiling was right above you and there was no place to go regardless if you were a, had you know a phd in in uh you know in engineering or whatever it was there was you know you're still working at the airport for 50 dollars a month there was there was yeah. no place to go and i i did feel that um quite a bit there so okay so kind of shifting gears cuz you 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 talked about um you know writing that particular song on the plane ride home or at least starting to write it uh that was a little bit of a window in, into your creative process um what does your process look like? Is it you strike when the iron's hot? Um, do you have songs kind of percolating all the time? What does it look like for you? No, I, I think it was in 2018. It was a very distinct. Um, so I, I I'd had conversations with 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 guys like Eddie Vedder and and just different people who wrote a lot. And I would say, you know, all the music I loved listening to as a kid. So you know, when I was in that weight room, my father was listening to the Mamas and the Papas and the Beatles and Billy Joel and James Taylor. And all of that was really solid and good and Elton John. But it didn't give me goosebumps yeah, for whatever reason. And yeah. when I heard Stone Temple Pilots, 15 years old, I hear Creep. And it was like, oh, that's something different. And that takes me down yeah. a journey of Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, um, you know, Bush, Live, Matchbox 20, and Stained. And a lot of those songs you could tell were coming from kids who had a, a worse upbringing than me. Yeah. That there was some sort of problems in their world. And the darkness in that, you know, for whatever, for being such an optimistic guy, I don't know why, it just resonated with me. Yeah. It just felt good to listen to these songs. And so I always wanted to write that yeah. it was something that had a little angst in it. And so I would ask guys and I would say, you know, like, I, I'm such a joyful guy. You know, my, my, my father made me believe that the glass is half full all the time in that weight room, no matter what, that how could I possibly write that stuff, you know? And so I was going to try to find a formula to be able to do it. And so what I did was I, I went out to LA and I got some riffs from the guys in the band and I'm, I'm like a rhythm guitar player. So when I'm writing, mostly it's going to be over regular finger chords. You know, you're just playing your, your regular old a minor GD. I'm not going to be, I'm not thinking about riffs. Yeah. And so I grabbed a couple of riffs from them and then I came back and I had a few things that I was working on a little bit and I would take them to Chris Lambert's house. Who's down in the, in the living room right now. He's, he's with his wife. They just came, they came down from Cincinnati to watch the show. Cause he had a lot to do with, with the demos oh, that cool. turned into this record. Uh-huh. I would write with Chris and I would write with Elliot Sloan from Blessed Union of Souls. And, oh, wow. And so he's a big Cincinnati guy, Reds fan. We've been hanging out for years and kind of messing around, playing music together. And so I just wanted to see if someone else in the room could get me over the hump because I never felt like I could finish a song from front to back. Like you'd start and it would be good, but I couldn't like finish the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know where to go. And a lot of times I didn't know what to write about because what I wanted to write about didn't innately feel I didn't feel that angst in me right yeah I, I was always positive so I'm, yeah so what I did was I took these stories and I said I'm going to write about an outside subject and I started writing about an outside subject and I found that having the other person in the room could get me over the hump with that fourth line in the chorus that I couldn't get or the way that the, the, maybe just the way you enunciate a word to make it work rhythmically or whatever and we having someone else to just push pull with me and and I'd say you know I'm still probably like 
pulling 70% of the weight. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm describing like what it feels like I'm riding in a car and it's, it, I'm with this girl, man. I'm having a crush with her and it's a perfect night. And it's 1975 and I'm going down the sunset strip and I want it to feel like this. Right. And I'm, so I'm saying that to them, but then they're helping me piecemeal how to get it out of my mouth. Yeah. And so that, that really was kind of the beginning stages of being like, Oh, I can finish a song. And once I, would do that and I'd leave after four hours I'd come with the demo or I'd come with just a riff and an idea leave in four hours with a junkie demo and listen back in the car on the drive home and go oh I can do that and then another one and then another one I kind of got addicted to to finishing songs and seeing how I could do that that was really the beginning of me seriously writing dude this is so, so much gold here so one thing I can 100% identify with you're a few years older than me but we're about the same generation yeah. right so I'm 42 and um that it's similar. Like I grew up like middle-class, uh, you know, my parents loved me, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, like there was right. some, there was some shit for right. sure. Right. Yeah. We all have our stuff, but right. you know, on the whole, like my life was pretty sweet, right. you know, generally speaking. And I never had a punk phase really. I think because I wasn't like, I wasn't like pushing back against anything authority wise. Cause like I, I was part of this power structure. Right, 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 like, right, right. It wasn't like, it never really felt like the world was against me or anything like right. that. But there was something about those grunge records. There was something about Soundgarden. There was something about Stone Temple Pilots. There was something about Pearl Jam. There was something about Nirvana. All those records right. that tapped into, like helped me, I think, understand angst as a universal. That right. like, no matter, despite the fact that I'm an optimistic person, just like you were and are, that I was, that my life was pretty good overall. I wasn't worrying about where I was going to get my next meal. I wasn't worried about whether people loved me. I was supported. Um, I got to go to baseball camp every fucking summer, right. you know, like, yeah. um, it, it, all of that was great, but we all have our stuff, right? We still have, there's an angst in there somewhere. And there was something about those records, I think that helped me to tap into, Oh, I'm I'm still frustrated. I'm still angsty. There's something in there that needs to get out in some way, and that music was an outlet. Right. Yeah, I feel like I feel exactly the same way. And and but then when you take it to the next level mm -hmm. and say, how do I, you know, I can I can absorb it and listen yeah. to it. Man, that feels good. And I think it's tapping into something in me that I don't usually like get into. But how do I invent that myself right. now? Right. With that small little nugget underneath there that you just discovered. That that was felt like an insurmountable task in a lot of ways. And it took it took these guys giving me some riffs that felt a little aggressive in a way and then starting to write a story and not kind of uh, really not focusing so much on on myself and what I feel about the world, but what does it feel like to be in the Vietnam War or what does it yeah. feel like to be with that girl on that night, you know, and kind of writing from an outside perspective. And then what I found, though, in the process is that I could take a little bit of me and who I was and weave it into the songs slightly in certain lines. And, you know, the, the through line to the whole record in a lot of ways is kind of is me. It's present tense. It's optimism. It's live for the moment because we will die soon. Right. But from an uh -huh. optimistic standpoint, it's like, you know, you will die soon knowing that. So you better, you better enjoy the ride. This is a beautiful ride, but you better enjoy it. That that's me on the record. It's all through the songs, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the start of me thinking about what I want to write this about. It was, it was, I had to write outside of myself in order to, to get to a place where it felt like the songs were, were, were coming out in a, in an honest and non cliche way. Man, it's great that you felt and, and correct me if you didn't feel comfortable, but it sounds like you felt comfortable bringing this process to people who could give you that push pull. And it's great that you found that 
because I, and I, I think for, for me and for a lot of folks who make stuff, uh, I'm not comfortable with that. I, I've never co-written a song. Mm-hmm. I, I've written a ton of songs, right. you know, but I've never, I've always been self-conscious about it, right? Like I need my buddy Patrick Hagerman, who's an incredible songwriter, to get his eyes on my songs and be like, this is great, dude, but also, you know, here's how you could, here's a lyric you could change, you know, here's here's a here's a progression that would make more sense. Here's a melody. Here's a, a, a thought about the melody. And I'm not comfortable with it at all. man. You don't like somebody critiquing it like that. See, I, <laughs> yeah. I always, you know, musically, you know, cause I didn't start playing until I was much later and I always yeah. felt like it was always more fun to play with guys that were better than you. Yeah, right. If uh-huh. I was the best person in the band, man, it always felt like the wheels were falling off the thing. And, and if <laughs> it's true, you know, yeah, because yeah. I, I don't, I didn't have a great ear from nature. You know, I don't sing harmony really. Um, you know, I can't, I can't record a song to the damn metronome and not get off the, the, the beat, you know, like yeah. it's hard for me to stay on it. So, you know, I can play live and, 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 and stay inside of that. No problem. But you know, this very distinct kind of like robotic thing in the studio, sometimes I just couldn't do. So it was always enjoyable to be around guys who were better than me. Or for instance, with Elliot, because he's a piano player, he could play the same chords as me and they sound so much different than what I'm playing on the guitar. So sometimes it will bring a melody to mind or it, or bring a mood to something that I wouldn't be able to do myself. And so I always really loved having somebody else in the room to work on stuff. And if, and if you don't get anything out of that process on that one specific day, it's like, okay, no big deal. I didn't lose anything. Right. But if I didn't tap into them, I felt like, you know, there that I, I was never going to get to the place where the song was as good as I think it can be, because I, I just don't feel like I'm a, you know, I mean, baseball was my life's work and, and music yeah. has, has been something that I picked up as a hobby on the backside that's turned a little more serious. But but I never I don't feel I felt like a pretty complete pitcher as a baseball player. I could uh-huh. feel my position. Yeah. Right. I could get a bunt yeah. down. I could throw strikes. I yeah. Could, yeah. Could, could, you know, if you need to drill somebody, you can drill somebody. But musically, yeah. I'm not a complete package. And so it's nice to have some other people around who can kind of plug into you. It's also great that you. Because when something is that big a part of your life, I mean, I know when my baseball career ended when I was 20, right. <laughs> you know, it was devastating, right? Yeah. Like oh, I, absolutely. I, that moment was devastating and it comes for all of us, right? Like the moment your career is going to end, yep. you can't play baseball for the rest of your life at a competitive level. Yeah. It's not a thing you can do. You can play guitar for the rest of your life. Uh, you can write songs for the rest of your life, but the thing that we were so passionate about that we loved, it's going to come now for you. Thankfully it came much later, but right. still it came for you. Cause yeah. it's going to, and to fill, you have to fill that void with something, right? Like it's yeah. great. That's so great that you've got music. Um, because it can, you can, I mean, I got real self-destructive in, when baseball was gone. Yeah, I could see that. I, I can remember standing at the plate my last at bat of my high school career, and I knew I was already drafted by the Pirates. I knew I yeah. was going to um, go on and play, at least in the minor leagues, and I can remember just almost tearing up at the plate, man, yeah. just thinking, like, this is my last high school at bat ever, you know? And, <clears throat> you know, it felt very similar, you know, throughout the minor leagues, even at the end of every season. I can remember, you know, you're with these guys for eight months and you're playing every single day and you're showering together and you're eating together and you're living together and it's like a band of high school buddies just traveling around on these buses playing these games. And at the end of every season, you might not play with these guys ever again and you would drive home and it felt very weird. It would take like a full week of being home to even kind of like snap out of it. It just, it felt mm. it felt like your high school days were ending and I don't know if I'm ever going to see these guys again. And that, that went on year after year after year, you know, and, and like you said, luckily, 
thirty. I got to parlay it all the way until I was forty. So yeah. you know, you felt like you you got a good ride, but you're right in in the sense that you've got to have something else to fill the void. I've seen a lot of guys do nothing but take their kids to and from school after playing the big league level. And man, they're literally calling me. And it's like, sometimes it can be suicide watch, man. It's like, you've got to have something to lean into, to dig into. That's hard. Something to make you nervous, something to make you feel a little bit of stress. Like if you don't have that, man, it can be very difficult for, for somebody who's played at the top of the mountain. Yeah. I mean, you want to, you're an all-star, you want a world series, you want to go glove. Like that's, that's adrenaline, right? That's like, there's so much that goes into that, that if you don't have something to fill that void, it can be really dangerous. I mean, shit, like I was at an NAIA division two school (laughs) and got cut. Right. And and it was like, right. You know, nobody was coming to see our games, right? (laughs) But still, right. But there was still that next day when you woke up and you knew you weren't playing baseball again, it was like your girlfriend broke up with you. hundred percent. Yeah. It was an empty feeling in your stomach, like a gut punch. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, I want to honor your time and, and this has been incredible as I expected it would be, but I, I have a couple of like uh, selfish questions. So like, yeah. um, the, your career overlapped with, uh, Joey Votto's, um, for a while. Um, he ended up being a, a great, and you'd already been in the league for a while yeah. by that, by the point that he came into the league. Um, did you know like Joey was going to be as good as he was when he showed up? You know, you heard you heard uh, stories about him being a pretty good hitter, but you know, you you hear a lot of stories about guys and they don't come to fruition. You know, I mean, playing at the AAA level is kind of like it's kind of like being a college quarterback, and you have no idea really what you're going to get at the NFL level until they get there and do it. Yeah. And I had heard stories about Joey being pretty good, but also that he's very raw. That he didn't play baseball much as a high school kid. He was a hockey player, didn't pick it up till he was like 16, and he also was kind of a, a different thinker. Yeah in a lot of ways. And he sat right next to me that very first spring training that he got called up uh, when he was in the big leagues, at least in spring, I think that was 2007. And mm. you know, what did give me an indication that I thought he was going to be a pretty good hitter was we throw um, what is called pitchers batting practice to the hitters in spring training. Most organizations, you do it twice. So you, you get there, you start getting in shape, you throw a couple, you throw like three or four bullpens and then you throw what they call a live BP. Mm. And a lot of times you have the, the L screen in front of you so you don't get hit with the line drive. And you're just trying to work on stuff. And a lot of times you tell the guys what's coming. Okay. And But most guys are up there and their sonic's so geeked up and they can't control the adrenaline. It's early in spring and they start throwing you know as hard as they can and everything's nasty and the hitters hate it. They hate it because, <laughs> because some of them get drilled. Yeah. I've seen guys like Manny Ramirez get drilled in spring training by some young kid. I mean, you know, it's, it's a bad situation for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And so I purposely early on in my career said, you know what, I'm going to throw – fastballs down and away to every single guy at like 85%. And I'm just going to hit the spot and stay comfortable, not get hurt, not get these guys hurt. And also let them take some swings that they feel comfortable in. Right. Uh And so Joey was up there and I never forget when you're going down and away with guys, a lot of times, even in spring training, you know, they get a little geeked up. They haven't seen live pitching in a while. They can start pulling off some stuff and you can just see that, you know, guys are wanting to hit the ball to the pull side. And Joey, Uh I I just went down and away all day to him. And man, he shot me to left center field, like one (laughs) hoppers off the wall all day. And for a guy to do that at a really young age and not even look, just look so comfortable doing it. I was like, Ooh, this guy's got something here. I don't know how good it's going to be, but man, that that's a different look. You talked about him being that. That's a great story. Thank you. The him being uh, kind of a different thinker. Um, I don't know if he's a musician at all, but like, it seems like there would be for you guys, like a lot of synergy creatively there. Yeah. You know, he is a creative guy and it's, it's, it's harder for him to kind of pin it down. He's finding his way now. And part of it is the fact that 
he is, you know, like you said, you know, you don't have a lot of time because you're taking care of your body. You're doing all these things as an athlete, but he has always been kind of almost manic about the fact that he mm. needs his rest. He needs this. He needs that. He needs his food, you know, so he hasn't thought outside of the game of baseball. I'd say of anybody I've ever played with, he probably so thought outside of the game less than anybody. Wow. And so Joey's smart. I can tell he tinkers with a lot of things, man. He speaks a lot of Spanish now. He has gotten into like geology. He, you know, <laughs> he, 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 he can chess. be like a comedian. I've been trying to, yeah. yes, he's into chess. I've been trying to convince him in Cincinnati to get down like just a 15 minute rock star um, comedy set uh, and, and open up for me at like, you know, Bogarts or something and let my band play afterwards and and have the band on the stage with him at the end of his set and play something just really cool. Almost like I don't know if you've ever seen like a William Shatner do uh -huh. like a thing and then he would almost like talk over a song. Yeah. He's wearing a tuxedo and smoking a cigarette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like this kind of cool thing. And I, I wanted to see if he could capture that. And I, I bounced it off him a few times, you know, and he's like, he says, Man, you know what kind of balls you got to have to do something like that, Ross? And I'm like, I know. And you got him, bro. Like, let's yeah, do it, yeah. you know, but he hasn't gotten there. But, you know, I was just out in spring training and they had a talent show that day and he opened up the talent show and he's, you know, he's like, he was like the MC and he's, he's really stepped it up in the last two, three years to really kind of show the young guys that he could break outside of his shell, even in the end of his career and try to put the right foot forward to be kind of a, a role model to these guys. And so he's, I think he's going to get there and he's going to be creative in his afterlife, but I don't know, um, you know, when that's going to be. I don't know, Bronson. I like your record a lot, and uh, I think you're you're uh, have a wonderful voice. And the videos I've seen of you performing, you have a great presence. But are you sure you want to follow Joey fucking Votto <laughs> doing a comedy show? <laughs> well, you know, maybe it's <laughs> be not careful a, what you wish for. Might man. not be an ideal night, but I think I feel like you know, you know what? Other, the other thing that people don't realize is, you know, when I think about this band, and I and I think about, you know, I've sat in Portland, Maine, with an acoustic guitar, and I had never barely even played shows in public at all when it's in 2005 with the red sox mm -hmm. i put this cover in the bases record out yeah. and the 5,000 people show up in portland maine wow and when i think about that now i think man if i could harness the power of what it was to be a red sox player and have this band and this record out you know uh. which, which wouldn't have been possible but but if you could the power of that so i, I wanted joey I wanted Joey to hit the stage and do something like that before he retires. Cause after you leave, man, you know, in a lot of ways it's, you know, the, the, the new, the new shiny toy, man, the new uh, player uh -huh. is, is gets most of the love and that's just the way it is. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But, but I wanted him to try to do that while he was still playing the game. That's super interesting, man. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to, I want to let you go, but before we do, we always end on uh, what you're getting down on. So that's the art that has you fired up right now. Um, that could be a record you're listening to. could be a painting you saw, a TV show you're into. Like, what's got you fired up right now, art-wise? Oh, man. I've been so darn busy with his own record, honestly. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I've been doing nothing but sitting in my basement talking to radio stations for, <laughs> for five hours at a clip thinking about this album. I mean, honestly, learning these songs acoustically and trying to figure out a way to play them myself has got me fired up lately. That's okay. for sure. But That's exciting. I'd say, um, you know, the Lumineers, man. I can't get enough of them the last few years. They, gosh, I saw them here at Innings Festival last year. And there's just something about these records. You can put them on all day, every day, and you never get tired of them. And, you know, there's something magical about being able to play slow music time and time again and still draw people in. Yeah. Very hard to do. Uh, you know, that, that's got me stuck for the, the last two years. Okay. Um, that reminds me of a thing that I did want to ask you about, which is just that, like you mentioned earlier, listen to some of those those 90s grunge records and and them tapping into something and now 
Eddie Vedder is like a part of your life. <laughs> Can you talk just briefly about like, that's gotta be a, a crazy feeling. It is, you know, met Eddie in 2010 at a show in Columbus. It was okay. the first time I'd seen Pearl Jam and he was very inviting. Got to sit in the, in the, in his, you know, green room. Did he know who you were? Like, yeah, he was such a big baseball fan. Yeah. I had been beating up on his, his favorite team, the Cubs, for a while. <laughs> so because of that, he definitely knew who I was. And, yeah. you know, some of the, some of my That's greatest, some of my greatest stories about Eddie are, are like, you know, him calling me being like, man, I watched you pitch last night. I was rooting for the Cubs and I was rooting for you and you just tore us apart, man. And, 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 <laughs> and, and you know, just, just being, you know, just having, having someone on that level, you know, kind of, uh, watch what you do and being enamored by that, you know, is, is a strange feeling. I remember I was in Pittsburgh. I was 24 years old. I was pitching against the Cardinals that night and I was up and down a lot of times and you didn't get to have too many really comfortable days at the big league level back then. But this uh -huh. day I was having a good night. I remember striking out Mark McGuire for the second time and I looked over and up on the Jumbotron, they showed Arnold Palmer and he was, you know, clapping and watching me pitch. And it was like, wow, this is crazy, man. That's like wild. just punched out Mark McGuire and Arnold Palmer's watching me. Throw, you know? <laughs> but being with Eddie is, is uh you know a lot of times you meet meet people and they are just people yeah partly doesn't matter where they've played yeah. you feel those insecurities whatever yep. it is yeah when when you're in a room with him it, it really feels like it's something special it feels mm. like a guy who has a few more answers to the universe than you mm. and um i don't often feel that way in a room with people and it's never gotten yeah. old you know we just played at innings festival with them and and just sitting and rehearsing a couple hours before we went up and and it's just like, you know, every, everything from his handwriting to his, his present tense attention to remembering names, mm. you know, all of those things. And to think that that came in a package that <laughs> I adored as a kid, right? That the, the Pearl Jam yeah. 10 record has been, has been as big a part of my life as almost anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to have someone make you feel that special and, you know, on the record and then in person for, for many, many years has been, has been absolutely incredible and and um you know one time i remember we were, it was after a show it was just me and him we we're drinking some coronas and yeah. we were talking he was he was telling me a story about about kurt cobain's death and and that was when he started smoking cigarettes for the first time and 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 we were back there and we listened to some fugazi man and he, he was kind of hyped up and and uh his tour manager kept saying we got to get on the bus eddie and he was like just one more beer one more song you know and we were hanging back there and and um i remember we were both we were both pissing at a urinal in the, in the room and, and I looked over at him and I said it was funny because I, I said you ever find it funny Eddie I said you know you you loved the who as a kid you know you, you kind of say you might not be alive if it wasn't for that music you know wow. and it was the only thing keeping you alive and, and now you've played on stage with them and you're friends with them you know and I said it was funny I said Johnny Bench called me today and I said I threw him in the voicemail because I, I, I didn't have time to talk and I said <laughs> I said isn't that strange you know and um and Eddie, and Eddie just Eddie just looked at me man he said he just looked at me and he, he didn't even blink man he just goes we earned this shit didn't we oh. <laughs> I said I said oh man it's crazy Oh my but, God. Yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been a good ride, man. If you know, I, I tell them all the time when I've been with them, it's like, you know, if I, I, at least I tell myself, it's like, if I never got another autograph, another sticker, another t-shirt, another hug, another anything from, from him, you know, I've, I've, I've had my fill in, in, in a way that I, you know, it's more than I could have ever expected. And, um, it, that, that has been a highlight of my life for sure. Oh my God. What a perfect way to end it. Bronson. Thank you so much for this, dude. This has been an incredible conversation. Yeah. Hey, honestly, man, listen, no BS. People come all the time and want to want to talk, man. But digging in, digging in, man, to the subtleties and the stuff you're doing, this is this is good stuff. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. What a beautiful night to share with you. Oh.
Bronson Arroyo, y'all. Thank you so much, Bronson. Thank all of you for listening. This was such a thrill. We After we recorded, Bronson gathered his band and uh, played a song for me. I wasn't going to be able to make it to the festival to catch their set. So he was like, well, you know, let's let's just put a little something together for you right now. It was so cool. They sound great. Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. It was incredibly cool. The song you're hearing in this episode is Nights Alive off their record, Some Might Say. Thank you so much to Bronson and his folks for letting us use it. Marinadepodcast.com for all things the marinade, including written pieces, photography, our online store, and more. I suspect that this episode has probably brought some new listeners. Give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok, Spoutable, and Twitter. Let us know how you feel about the show. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Tell a friend about the marinade. These are all free ways to support this work that we're doing. And if you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community. For just two bucks a month, y'all, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content like our show, Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and provide a window into the process of making the marinade. We have a, a somewhat new monthly show. We're about to record episode four. It's called What We're Getting Down On. And it's a conversation between me and my good friend, Peter Haroldson. Also, check out our show, Inner Child, where I ask our guests childlike questions such as favorite food, TV show, stuff like that. It's all on Patreon. It's all just $2 a month. Uh, But if you want to support the show financially and you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, I totally get that. You can Venmo or PayPal us just at the marinade. All the money goes right back into the making of the show. For example, uh, we've done this for so long now. Since 2016, I've been making these episodes. And... uh, And so I've run out of space like everywhere. And so, um, you know, one of the things that the Patreon pays for is just uh, iCloud storage. So, you know, those kinds of things, those little costs that go into the show, uh, the Patreon basically pays for the overhead right now, which I really appreciate. But if we could also get to a point where I can use some of that money to cover festivals, that would be awesome. Uh, We've got some cool opportunities and we just need to figure out how to make it happen. But above all, We're just thankful that you listen and spread the word about the marinade. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.